Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and muser of metacognition, David Peterson. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Daniel P. Simon for the IDG podcast. He has a new book out called The Money Hackers. And if you're listening and you're somehow connected to fintech, financial technology, this is a must read. But for the rest of you that are not deeply ingrained into the world of financial services, I encourage you to listen to Daniel's insightful comments as he highlights some of the pioneers that created the services you likely take for granted that are on your mobile device. And if you decide to buy Daniel's book, I promise you, you won't be disappointed. Take a listen. Well, good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are in the world today. We are so excited on Innovation Driven Growth Podcast to have with us Daniel P. Simon. He is the author of a new book called The Money Hackers. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Tell our... um, IDG listeners, just give them a kind of a high-level overview of Daniel P. Simon. Oh, Daniel P. Simon uh, is a PR guy by, by background, an English and French literature major, um, who's a super unlikely dude to be working on Wall Street, but who nevertheless found himself as primarily, initially a speechwriter to some of the most senior folks, CEO and, and chair people on Wall Street and then spent 15 to 20 years uh, on Wall Street, despite my thick Bronx accent. I'm not actually <laughs> from around here. And then got, got invited to write a book about how technology has transformed the financial industry. Nice. And, of course, the book is called The Money Hackers, but here's the subtitle, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever. So what's the inspiration for you? How did you decide to kind of, look through and see what these different individuals were doing and pull that together in this particular talent? Sure. Uh, so I had always worked, I'd always taken an interest in the technology side of finance. So I, we, we, we're fond of my firm of saying, yeah, we were in fintech before fintech was sexy. Back then it was just financial technology. And if you wanted to shut down a conversation at a dinner party, all you had to do was to say, I work in financial technology. Yeah, exactly. People would walk away from you. Um, and now, now, of course, if you say, I work in fintech, they want help setting up their Acorns account or their Venmo or something. So they think you're very cool now. So fascinated by the guts of how kind of Wall Street kind of worked. And so as we talk about in the book about 10 years ago, this kind of new wave of really fascinating individuals start coming on the scene and start using all this incredible technology, cloud computing and AI and machine learning and, and mobile, uh, you know, mobile technology to not to kind of build tech for the banks, but rather to build their own kind of banks right. and really shake up the world of, of finance. I, got with, I was lucky enough to work with some of these people. And, um, you know, as I worked with some of them, I just saw how different they were from the other financial clients that I worked with from the other financial folks. 
and and I was I was just struck and that that word misfits by their kind of outsiderness. Right. Um, and uh, the more we looked, as as when Harper Collins came and said we want you to write this book about a, a really consumer and accessible book about how technology has transformed everybody's money. You know, the more we looked, the more we found that these people were were fascinating folks in their own right, often with entire you know, life stories that kind of have like made for TV kind of, kind of stories. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you had a chance obviously to take a look at some of the, some of the people in the book. So not every single one of them, but, but the vast majority of them are, are kind of, and I say this in the nicest possible way, weirdos. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. But if you, if people read this book, they're going to see that it's a collection of stories. Obviously you're talking about these people who changed the industry, but you're really talking about them and some of the circumstances that occurred. But one of the things that struck me is that these are all not, these are not, uh, you know, all millennials, you know, coming up with ideas. You've, you've got people across the, every possible part of the world in different ages. You know, you go from John Stein to Adam Dell to, John Bogle, I mean, you're, you're, you're jumping a bunch of decades there. Did you, how did you determine who, these, who was going to make it into this book? Well, part of the reason that you've got, um, you know, the older folks, some of the older folks, is because, as I say this in my author's note, you, whenever you start looking for innovation, you realize that kind of one technology is stacked on top of the other, is stacked on top of the other. So, you know, if you start looking, start uncovering an innovation, you realize you can't really talk about robo-advisors without talking right. about passive investing. And you can't talk about passive investing without talking about Bogle, right? Or, uh, and so right. that's kind of how, that's some of how these characters got un- uncovered is we sort of went, okay, well, we start with company X, but hang on, we can't really talk about that unless people understand. And then you find yourself going all the way back to, in some cases, like, the birth of Western Union in like the 1800s, right? So we kind of, some of the stories had to go way back in time to kind of really set the scene. Um, the other things that happened was, you know, as we were talking to folks, I, I had I had a great team of, of people around me that, 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 I mean, it's obviously a lot of these people are, are people I knew. I was lucky enough to know Blythe Masters already. I'd written some speeches for her and done some work with her. Lucky enough to know Adam Dell, same I, I counted him okay. as a client. I helped launch Clarity Money. So, you know, I, I already had great relationships with some of these people. But often they would say, you know, oh, did you go and talk to Ken Lin from Credit Karma? You can't really tell the right, story of lending right. without understanding what Ken did with, you know, the democratization of credit scores. So it's the perfect, it's the perfect networking because you had some contacts and then they were like, oh, you need to talk to, you need to talk to, and then you just marched through to get all of these profiles in the book. Yeah, and often, you know, I went into this thinking, okay, we're going to do one chapter on, say, lending and yeah. how, how borrowing money looks very different today from the way it did 15 years ago, uh, which, by the way, is especially relevant today as, the, you know, as, as a lot of small businesses are going to need to borrow money in this current crisis. And we, we said, okay, great, we're going to focus on one person. Let's focus on, for example, Renault Laplanche, who you know, basically invented the category of peer-to-peer lending. He started Lending Club, which is right. a publicly traded company, and he's a fascinating guy, and he gets fired from his own company, like Steve Jobs style, so he has his own kind of interesting made-for-TV movie kind of life. But then really, you know, that's just covering the personal element of, of lending, of peer-to-peer lending. Really, right now, what's going on in the middle of this crisis right now 
is tons of small businesses need to get their hands on liquidity. So we really wanted to then talk about small business lending. So that's what led us to someone like Catherine Petrolia, who's um, from, from Cabbage, who is in her own way just an absolutely fascinating individual. And so what we ended up doing is these chapters that were supposed to be exposés of 10 individuals would often kind of just exponentially kind of grow to be, you know, oh, let's also, so in lending, you've got Renault for Lending Club, but you've got Catherine for um, uh, for Cabbage and the small business piece. And then we had to have a sidebar in there for, for Ken Lynn and Credit Karma because in, in many ways, the story of just people understanding their credit score right. um, and having a mobile phone in their pocket with which they could, you know, access the internet and check their credit score in real time, you know, was a, is a huge part of that whole lending, just that lending piece has too yeah. many, there's just too many giants, too many fascinating individuals. Yeah. And, 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 and frankly, this book, you know, it could be five books because there's a whole sure, ton of sure. There's whole tons of the industry we didn't get to include. That's right. Well, I started I started my fintech journey in 1983, so I've been around for a long time. And I have to say that literally almost every story in here, um, at least the you know the individual, the companies involved, I knew who they were, but I did not know the depth of the story and the way that you covered it. Or who do you think are the readers for this? Are you are you looking for people that have an interest? Um, you know, that are looking at the fintech community or in, in finance, uh, Wall Street in general, or do you see a broader appeal for the money hackers? Um, it's a much broader appeal. Uh, I would say it's like concentric circles, right? So if, you re- if, you're, if you're in the financial industry and you want to understand how technology has transformed and will continue to transform this industry, this is a slam dunk for you. If you are on the next ring of that concentric circle, you know, if you're interested in, your money, if you think about, you know, why you haven't written a check for a very long time or you know, maybe even what's going on with some of the things in the economy right now, there is a lot of interesting stuff in here about the democratization of finance and why, you know, the financial industry shouldn't just exist to serve the very richest. And a lot of the people in here truly, truly believe that, you know, finance should exist as a tool that empowers everybody or almost everybody. So you've got people like Green Street, sorry, Green Dot uh, with C Street, the uh, Green Dot, mm-hmm. who, who created the bank for the underbank. People like Betterman, who are trying right. to make access to um, uh, investing more available to everybody. People like Renault, who are trying to make credit more available, or Ken Lin, who yeah. are trying to make credit more available to people. So, you know, if you're interested in money, Generally, doesn't, you don't have to work in finance if you're interested in money. And then the third ring, I would say, is kind of interest if you're if you're interested in entrepreneurship and innovation more broadly. So, you know, it's really interesting. The beginning of this book takes place in the middle of the financial crisis, 2008, and many of the players like uh, Betterment, uh, like uh, Lending Club, like Credit Karma, uh, get started. You know, right in the heart of the financial crisis. So in many ways, this is a story, a classic innovation story of a crisis and then two groups of people, West Coast thinking technologists and uh, East Coast bankers looking at the crisis and coming away with two completely different conclusions. Um, One sees nothing but downside, that's the bankers, and so they retrench, they they pull back from investment, uh, they, they retrench from innovation. The other 
see nothing but opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and they move forward, you know, as, as Warren Buffett would say, you know, be, uh, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Right. And, and this is a moment of crisis. And so uh, you have a whole group of people who are greedy when others are fearful. And, and they go on to build the lending clubs and the credit commas, which I think just sold for $7 billion or something right, right. insane like that. So it's, I think it, you know, that third ring of, of readers, are if you're looking at this current crisis and you're thinking, how do I deal with this current crisis? What are the lessons that I can learn from the last crisis? You know, there's a whole, there's a whole entrepreneurship innovation yep. Story for this. So I hope it. I hope it appeals to a, a wide range of readers. And I would just say, there's also, you know, if you're a casual business reader, there's some fascinating individuals. So even if you don't really care about money and you don't care about starting your own business or entrepreneurship, just some of the people that I got to hang out with, like Ishmael Ahmed, who created World Remit. I mean, I always say his story is like pursuit of happiness meets Hotel Rwanda. Uh, you know, he was a he was a refugee from Somalia yeah. and caught up in the middle of the Somali civil war. Puts himself through, you know, through university, becomes the head of the remittance program for the United Nations, uncovers a giant scandal, becomes a whistleblower, gets fired, sues them in the court, the international courts, wins, and uses that money to start one of the fastest growing technology companies in the UK. So, yeah. um, you might not care about money and democratizing finance, but he sure has an interesting life story. So there's some, there's some good stuff in there for those yeah, kind yeah. of readers too. Just a quick aside here. When I published my crisis management book, Grounded, I passed an early copy around to close friends whose opinion that I respected. One of those readers was Paige, who told me up front that she didn't like business books, but she agreed to read it anyway. She told me afterwards that she was really taken in by Grounded and enjoyed reading it. Paige would really like The Money Hackers. And I will say, you know, I would have been interested in this book no matter what, just because of my background and my years in this industry. But I also know people, uh, uh, I wrote a book and had a bunch of people read it. It's kind of a management book. And people said, oh, you know what? I don't care for business management books, but I like the way your book was written. And this is what I think readers will find in The Money Hackers. That it's, a, it's a story. It's individual stories. It's, it's historical perspective, yes. But I think that the style of writing here is very engaging, um, and it will keep anybody's interest, uh, even if they don't have a uh, particular bent for you know all of this uh, magic. They'll be fascinated by the stories. I want to focus now. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm on that. I've always said, you know, come for the, uh, come for the technologist, stay for the technology. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you, you know, you these people are interested. And I was very fortunate. I should just say very quickly, I was very fortunate to have a writing partner, a, a, an incredible guy called Chris Dewan. And I mean, I'm a writer for a living, so it's not like I can't write, but his style and my style are so different. And I'm so grateful for him working with me on it because, you know, if I, if it was up to me, the chapter would begin, you know, let me tell you about payment gateways. Um, <laughs> right. and, and instead, the chapter reads much more like John Stein looked out of the cold morning and took a sip of his dark black coffee. So it's that kind of, you know, it's that style. Exactly. And then we get into payment gateways and we get into remittances and we get into passive investing. 
But I, for those of your listeners who might be thinking, oh, my God, that sounds a bit heavy, I promise you it's an engaging and light read, um, I, I and, you'll, can, and you'll can, learn something along the way. I can promise all of our IDG listeners that they would be very happy to sit out on the back porch with a, a, a hot cup of black coffee and yeah, enjoy or, reading this book. Or a pivot on the innovation side. I spend a lot yeah. of time with traditional financial institutions, banks and credit unions, not so much Bank of America, Well City Chase, but you know, mm-hmm. first first national bank of any yeah. town, USA. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. By and large, these are organizations who haven't really changed much in many decades and are still sort of slow to, to make this transition and really think more innovatively. Yet at the yeah. same time, and I think you accurately point out in the epilogue, it's not that easy or even desirable for any of these fintechs to decide, well, hey, let's just go get a bank charter. It doesn't, yes, no, uh, no. It, it's not. It's not something that um, even with some of the changes the OCC has done, I think there's only one active fintech that's moving forward um, yeah. with a charter. So, so where yeah. do you see if you kind of point your vision and look yeah. ahead as far as the typical financial institution? Yeah. What are their What are their takeaways? What should they be doing and thinking about relative to? Hey, I've got to be relevant for somebody who's 12 years old today. Eight years from now, 12 years from now, 15 years from now. It's such a good question, and I think that there's a lot of takeaways. So you're right to point out that actually it's, it's no small thing to have a bank license in this country, and the regulatory spaghetti suit, particularly in the United States, right, which differentiates the states from other places that we looked at in the book. So we're not talking about China here, we're not talking about Europe, where it's much easier to kind of create a bank, right? Essentially, America doesn't want you to create a bank, right? So if you're a yeah. fintech, and, and a European fintech might be something like N26, Monzo, Revolut, they're all coming over here. Uh, Chime, uh, they're all partnering with banks. Those exact kind of mid-sized regional banks like you're talking about, uh, uh, credit unions and so forth, to essentially be the back end to their front end user experience, right? Um, And that's a really smart move for a regional bank if you want to go down that road. I will say that the build-by partner proposition, you know, has – changed over the last few years thanks to computing power, cloud computing. You know, I think that while the and, – and what I would say is also as you compete with the Bank of Americas, right, more than the fintech, you know, it's not like the Bank of Americas were incredibly, you know, ahead of the curve. Like, it's not like you've got a lot of ground to make up as a small regional or mid-sized financial institution because frankly when was Zell launched two years ago 18 months mm. ago right so you know it, it's not it's not that long ago that your bank of america app couldn't send money to your friend who had a chase account insane as that is right when when the uk has had some equivalent of that venmo like just peer-to-peer payment for 12 yeah. 50, 15 years right so um so actually if you're a small mid-sized regional I think you, you actually have a few aces up your sleeve. One is, yes, you're a desirable target to partner with uh, a, a fintech. Uh, second, if you've got um, the inclination to build your own sort of digital experience or whatever, there are a lot more off-the-shelf options for you today than there were five years ago. So it's, and it's not such a big lift. It's not so expensive as it was, the, it's not as capital intensive to kind yeah, of yeah. put digital front ends on your offering. The other thing that I do always think about is that, you know, the more ubiquitous the technology, the more the human 
empathetic thing becomes important. And I see this with financial advisors too, right? Let's just take the world of financial advisory. Robo-advisors have placed enormous thematic pressure on financial advisors, right? They've essentially said that the cost of allocating stocks is 35 basis points. It's not 100 mm -hmm. basis points, it's 35 basis points. Mm -hmm. um, and that's right. But that doesn't mean that the financial advisor is worthless at 100 basis points. It does mean, however, the, the role of the financial advisor has to change. They have to look at me as a whole person. Essentially, they have to transition into the role of a kind of financial life coach. And if I'm a high net worth client, like I think that's well worth paying for, right? If someone who's looking at both sides of the ledger, who's looking at my spending and my allocation, so they're like, you know, like the number one use, you know, people said TurboTax is going to put accountants out of business. Right. Incorrect. The number one, the number one user of TurboTax are accountants. Accountants, right. Right. So, you know, and the same thing is going to happen in the advisory space. Robos, in many ways, will become part of the advisor's toolkit. And if you've got the money, it's going to be well worth working with a financial advisor because they're the human face and they're going to help you if they truly have empathy in their heart, they care, care about their client. I think regional banks have that same opportunity too. You know, I, I, um, there's a woman, Jill Castilla, she's the CEO of Citizens Bank of Edmund. Sure, I know that bank well. You know, I, if you think, you know, she was one of the first people to create like ATMs that also have tellers in them. Uh, right. She launched this thing called uh, cash mobbing, where when a new business opened in the in the neighborhood, uh, there was a client of hers, you know, she and their team would go and they would spend a thousand dollars and they would flash mob, you know, their, their, uh, their, new, their, store, their new customer right. and, that, and that would get lots of PR for them. You know, that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of thing Bank of America and Chase and these guys, they're not going to do that. They're going to flash mob your local and, company. And, and your local. Daniel, let me interrupt you here because uh, Jill's story is a great one, and she gets written up, you know, pretty frequently as having an amazing social media presence, uh, way way more than what you would expect from any other community bank. Yet, what I don't see is I don't see a, a lot of community banks following Jill, and, and I guess that's what my real question is: do, do, do they look at Jill and go, "Oh, wow, that's kind of really interesting," but I don't see the vast majority of these thousands of other financial institutions saying, oh, my gosh, she's showing us the way. Why aren't, you know, we got to go follow her. I don't, I don't really see that happening. What, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I mean, again, I am, uh, let, me, let me just plead the fifth here and just remind everybody I'm an English and French literature major, right? So I am not, <laughs> I just play, I just play a fintech, I just play a fintech regional bank advisor on TV. I'm not a Come real on. doctor. Just so, these zoos that give us wisdom. You know, I do think that, look, I, I do think that my, my general advice would be you have to play to your strengths, right? And if yeah. you don't have the scale and you don't have the institutional kind of clout to the large, you know, firm, you, you kind of have to. I, I do believe more broadly, whether it's regional banking or, or financial advisory or any of these things, that, you know, in many ways, human qualities are going to be the things that, that people stick around for and, right. and are worth paying for, right? right. And, 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 and in areas of health and wealth, you know, people don't always want to self-serve. People yep. recognize that in the, particularly in those mission-critical parts of their life, look at what's going on right now. Wouldn't you like to have someone hold your hand right now 
No, some no, of this. No, I will some, some of this. But not touch my hand. Well, that's right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Don't hold my hand. Stand, yeah. comfort me from a nice comfort six to ten feet away. I, yeah, I, I social distancing. Elbow. That's correct. Yes, we 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 discovered it, Danny, right here. The bank should be saying, "We've got your elbow. Like we're going to take you by the elbow and get you through this crisis." There's your there's your marketing campaign. That's a great idea. Taking you, holding you, <laughs> holding your elbow from six feet yeah. away. But you're 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 hitting it right right on the nose. It, it, right now we're dealing with uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, who knows? By the time this is out on the podcast, we we either might be still in the midst of this uh, quarantine, Daniel. I think you have escaped. Uh, I better not say this because uh, it's recorded. But you're at, you're in a remote location. Uh, not I'm in, in a your normal New York City uh, office. Correct. I am. I, yes, I'm a future yeah, location. Yeah. And I'm speaking to you from my upstairs studio in a home that I own in a little hamlet called Hayhira, Georgia, which is only about 25 miles from the uh, border with Florida down in South Georgia. So we are we are as far away from civilization, basically, as we can be as we're speaking here. And my bank, and I'm sure your bank, is closed to the public in the sense that the lobby is locked some banks, I think, are still offering drive-through service, but they're really focusing on their digital presence. And so this is this is an eye-opening kind of wake-up call for these financial institutions to say, hey, if our digital presence isn't as strong as it could be, including oh. social media and how we're talking to uh, customers and prospects and so forth, this is going to jar them, I think. I would 100% agree. I mean, you know, I, I think that uh, when I talk about the human touch, you know, some of that obviously was physical. I don't think it all has to be physical. I thought what Jill did with the, you know, with the digital teller or the remote teller, one of the first right. to, one of the first to do that, demonstrated, and that was years ago, uh, demonstrated that um, you can still create a human experience from a distance if you're a regional player. And I think if you are a regional player, your the value is that you care and you understand the community. You do it yeah. in a way that a big faceless brand, many of whom are my clients, so I have to be quite careful about what I say, but a big faceless brand can't do. And I do believe that those human qualities of, you know, knowing the market, caring, it sounds hokey, it sounds kind of Bedford Falls-ish, but I do think that those, that's what you're playing with. So you're either going to, you're either going to lean into that, and yes, you obviously need to make that digitally enhanced, so, yes, you're having Zoom conversations with your clients yeah. now. You're having FaceTime yeah. conversations with your clients. So I'm not suggesting it all has to be done over a coffee in the, in the lobby of your building. But you, you either, you're either going to lean into that human quality or you're going to give up because you can't play the scale game that the big guys have. So if, um, if you think about the, the arc of services that you talked about in the Money Hackers, and now, again, since you're an expert in fintech, Daniel, I want you to project forward and say, what are the kinds of things that you think would, would be, you know, in, in your book five years from now, The Money Hackers 2.0, what are the kinds of things that you think are going to happen over the next five years that would be, okay, Daniel says, i gotta, I got to write the, the next chapter of this. What are those kinds of services that are going to get changed? Well, absolutely, and I think you're seeing some of them now. So, so there's lots of different answers to that question. One is, what did we not get time to put in the book, right? So the world's largest asset class, you know, by dollar value is real estate. We didn't talk right. about real estate. Right. I, didn't get a ch I didn't get the time to talk about commercial 
fintech, you know, the way that right, things right. like Stripe and Square are basically right, turning right. everybody into, you know, can turn every every entrepreneur into an ability to take money. That's a huge area, and that's going right. to, you know, that is just, that area is just going to continue to explode, particularly with the freelance gig, you know, economy. I think the flip side of that, which is what we're seeing right now, is, you know, there are some structural problems in this country that we start to scratch the, the surface of in the book um, when we talk about democratization, right? 50% of Americans didn't have $500 in emergency savings mm-hmm. at the top of a 12-year bull run. So right. God knows what it looks like today. Right. Um, you know, it is a parlous, parlous situation for a lot of people. And that then we have massive income and wealth inequality in this country. And I'm afraid to say that this current crisis is just going to make it worse. And so, you know, that's where fintech can play a role. How do we extend more credit? Because remember, regular people don't use credit the way that the, you know, hate to sound Trumpian about it, but the elites use credit, right? I'm 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 an urban, metropolitan, international, I'm everything that Stephen Miller hates, right? and I use credit either really to fund purchases that I can afford all at once, like a house or a, or a boat <laughs> or a car. Right. right. Um, but that's not how the vast majority of Americans use credit. They use it to smooth over the bumps that have been yeah. handed to them through an erosion of social safety nets and yeah, they, they the, ri- to, the rise of the gig and shift economy. They have to spend $500 to get their car fixed just so they can make it to work every day. Correct. And remember, yeah, yeah. you know, they drive for Uber, so now they're bringing the factory to work. They own the factory they work in, right? You know, and that's, a, you know, probably an entire podcast's worth of, of a conversation. Exactly. But, fi- but fintech can solve for some of that problem, too. Why do they have to work a week to get paid? Why right. isn't that cash right. in their pocket there and then the moment they make right. it? That would at least yeah. help. And, yeah. and the same is true for shift workers. You know, right now we've got these essential workers on minimum wages who are the people taking enormous personal risks for themselves, um, exposing themselves to the, the COVID virus so that we can get toilet paper. And then the ultimate insult for them is they may not get paid for the day. They may have to wait two weeks to get paid. So that's a fintech problem that, that we need to solve, yeah. you know, right there. And then, yeah. and then you know, slightly less sort of socially conscious things as we look forward in the next few years that we really only scratch the surface of big tech, right? So since I filed the draft of the book, you had Facebook launching uh, Libra, or at least trying to launch its own uh, cryptocurrency. Right. You had Google launching checking accounts. You had the Apple, Goldman, credit cards. You saw Uber getting into short-term leasing of vehicles and so forth. So you have big, big tech companies really starting to do more than just get their toe in the financial world. They're saying, okay, this could be, this could be a really tasty avenue for us, uh, particularly as that ad model has come under so much scrutiny. Why, yeah. you know, big banks have been very, very hard, very sticky businesses to kind of get away from. But big tech, the people who are in our lives, all day. I, I was on Instagram. I don't think I'm on Instagram a lot. You know, I'm not someone who's religiously posting to Instagram. To me, it's like a very, very light thing. But I got a little alert on my phone that said, 
my average view time on Instagram was like 28 minutes a day. I thought, and I go, and I'm like, I don't post right. to Instagram. I'm like, what the hell am I doing for 28, right. half an hour a day? Uh, it has managed to capture my attention. And I think yeah. of myself as a relatively productive human being. So, you, you know, the one thing that the big tech, Facebook, Instagram, Google, Amazon have managed to do is, is really be in so much of the workflow of our life. So for them to move into the financial space, I think is, is a very natural thing. And then the last thing I'd say is China. Uh, we touch on that. But again, you know, when we talk about fintech and we think about, oh, we go betterment and wealth funds and lending club. And, and the reality is all these things are tiny naps. You know, they are fleas on the back of WeChat, right? I mean, when you look at something like WeChat, it is just absolutely, it's inconceivable by Western standards that you would have an app that combines, you know, it's a super app, right, that combines PayPal and Venmo and Uber uh, and Seamless all in one mega app, right? Right, right. Um, and, and so from a macro perspective, you, you know, I certainly don't think, particularly what's going on with this crisis right now, I think there's a, there's a view of the view of the future potentially where China comes out of this in a way that the West struggles to because of all the things that they have, you know, autocratic government, compliant populace, mass surveillance, mass testing, all the things that we don't have in this country. Um, and, and, and where we start to see real dominance of tech, not just fintech, but, but Chinese tech across the board. Yeah. This book uh, is going to be available on, uh, on Amazon, of course. It, or what are the different ways? Can they get it from your website? Is Amazon? What's the best way for uh, somebody who wants to get their very own copy, uh, physical or digital, of The Money Hackers? Many different ways. Anywhere the books are sold. Barnes & Noble uh, online is a good option. Amazon, obviously, Money Hackers for digital download and physical pre-order. Uh, it's available mid-April. And then on my website, danielpsimon.com. Danielpsimon.com. And Amazon, of course, has dramatically changed how books are published and distributed and so forth. Just as somebody who's, you know, now a part of this world of publishing a book and so forth, the, the, how do you see that innovation? What's the innovation coming over the next, you know, three, five years as you think about when you might be asked to write The Money Hackers 2.0. What's going to happen with this whole book publishing industry? Oh, my gosh. Well, I don't know, and I hope I get asked <laughs> to write up uh, Money Hackers well, this 2.0. Is gonna, this is going to be a bestseller. They're going to want another one right away. I hope, I hope they do because there's so many more things that we can – there's so many more things that we yet have to talk about, as you and I just touched on. I mean, obviously, like so many industries, you know, technology is disrupting the publishing industry, too. You know, funnily enough, right now, I think Amazon might be slow walking physical copies of this book in favor of, obviously, crucial, you know, crucial necessity supplies like hand sanitizer and N25 masks and N95 masks. So if, you, if you've got to get your hands on a physical copy of the book in the next 10 days, uh, depending on when your podcast comes out, then probably go to Barnes & Noble online. And if you want a digital download because you can't even wait for the postage, you just got to have it on your Kindle, yep. get, it from, get it from Amazon. Money has yeah. it. There you go. And then, so let me, let me kind of wrap this up with a little bit of a future advice from Daniel P. Simon. Every summer I get the joy and, and uh, 
Uh, it's just one of the most favorite things that I do is I teach at a graduate banking school at the University of Colorado. And so it's out in Boulder in the middle of July. It's so hot in South Georgia. It's just a great getaway. And I get somewhere between, you know, 70 and 120 students who come into my class. I have a technology class and an innovation class. And, and these are younger bankers, um, you know, mid-level folks across lending, compliance, operations, audit, deposit, retail, all, all across the whole spectrum. But these are the people who are being groomed as the future leaders of their financial institution. And they come from all over the United States, but mostly west of the Mississippi. And so they're going to now get the money hackers on their reading list for this July. And so I'll, I'll, I'll say you guys need to read this book before you come to my class. So here's what I want to ask you. If, if, oh, yeah, if, wonderful. Simon was, if you were standing in front of this class and you're saying, okay, guys, you are in charge of making sure that your financial institution stays relevant, you know, in the next yeah. 20 years, you're here at this graduate banking school because you're groomed to be future leaders. What's the advice now that you're giving to these, you know, young Gen X, old millennials who are the future leaders of these uh, financial institutions? What are you telling them? Well, firstly, I'd say thank you for the opportunity to address you. Secondly, I would say you've chosen the right industry. I think that's the first thing I just say is like, you know, you technologists, you, you know, you, you, um, uh, we're all, all going to be technologists, right? And it's about where do you want to apply that technology? And right now, you know, Amazon can drone the sushi into my mouth and I can, uh, I can order, uh, you know, infinite Disney Plus movies and I, I think all of that becomes less and less meaningful whereas money and what people do with their money and how people access money right i'm on the board of the museum of american finance and uh, the ceo of the museum uh, david cowan is fond of saying you know finance is a machine for moving money forwards and backwards in time so when you take a mortgage you borrow money from your future self and when you open a retirement account you are giving money, you're sending money into the future. It's a fascinating yeah. concept, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and, and there's real problems, as I alluded to before, right? The vast majority of Americans, income inequality, uh, income volatility. We've got some real problems to solve. So I think in the world of entertainment, in the world of streaming music and all that, I genuinely, and food delivery, I really feel like a lot of the problems have been solved. I don't think, I think the people who are dedicating the next 10, 15 years of their life, even inside a big financial institution, it's, a, it's a, an honorable profession and a really interesting place to, uh, to focus your energies and, and attention. Um, the thing I would say is, you know, so many of the shibboleths uh, of, the, of the truths that we held to be self-evident up to the financial crisis were proved to be wrong. Right, so we didn't think that the zero could be a profitable proof point, but you know what, Schwab has proved that, right? And so the one thing I would just be ready to say, because this, one thing that crises like the one we're going into right now, it's happened in 2008, happened in 2001, is it tends to turn established thinking on its head. Yeah. You know, in the movie, The Big Short, right, which is about the financial crisis, uh, Lewis opens with a quote from Mark Twain, which says, it ain't the things you don't know that kill you. It's the things that you know for sure that just ain't so. And, and, and there's a reason he opens on that is because the financial crisis and what happened afterwards, which is where my book starts, is really all about, you know, learning the wrong lessons from the crisis. Banks looked at the crisis and said, we shouldn't be lending to people other than super prime. And, you know, we shouldn't be innovating with these constructed assets that we built, like, you know, 
like credit default swaps. And the technologists looked at the world and said, Google and, and Facebook appear to be making huge amounts of money selling to the very poorest in our community, essentially, right. the, you know, the, the lowest. And PS innovation, you know, there's this new thing called the iPhone. It's just put, the, it's just put a computer in everybody's pocket. This seems like a wonderful time to innovate. And so two different groups looked at the same situation and drew opposite conclusions. And, and what I would say is be prepared to have your established thinking challenged, especially at a time of crisis. And so, you know, what are the things that you know for sure? And, and how much of that is this current crisis going to, is going to challenge? Listen, uh, this has been great. I, uh, I'm going to say right now, I'm going to, I'm going to have a prediction that somebody is going to be listening to this podcast. They're going to get a copy of the Money Hackers. And they're going to come up with an idea. They're going to come up with an idea that neither Daniel or David at this point in time is even thinking about. And it's going to light the world on fire. And five years from now, they're going to be featured in the Money Hackers 2.0. And then when you're interviewing them, they're going to say, yeah, I heard you, I heard you talk about the Money Hackers on this podcast, right? So somebody's going to catch fire, and, and, and it's just that fast. In five years, Somebody who's not even thinking about fintech right now could come up with the next kind of big thing that literally sets our industry on fire that's completely outside of anything we're thinking about today. Uh, from your lips to God's ears. That's it. That's it. Listen, we've been talking with Daniel P. Simon. The book is The Money Hackers, How a Group of Misfits Took on Wall Street and Changed Finance Forever. It's available at DanielPSimon.com. You can also get it on Amazon and anywhere where books are sold. Daniel, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. And in this time of, of global pandemic, I hope wherever you are secreted in the way that you and your family remain safe. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me on the show. It was a delight. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon.